Welcome. It is Monday night, Generational Change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. And I've got a better laptop now. Yeah. Very fancy. Very fancy. Oh, I'm schmancy fancy. You know how that works. And yet you still can't seem to manage to come in as a host, but that's okay. Well, I think- I've only been asking you to figure that out for two years, but that's okay. You actually changed my name to Jen Change New Jersey, huh? I just did. Yes. Is there a problem with that? New Jersey is about 50 degrees colder than where you are right now. That's nice. It it's is, not fall it, like here, though. It rains, so that's like fall. Oh, no, here. it ain't fall here. It's winter. It's full-on winter here. In fact, last night it got to about the mid-20s. That's pretty cold. I know. It I like that. It though. ain't 80-degree Florida, that's for sure. I, I, I like that. I don't like the heat. I, I wilt. So let's let's bring on Shahid because he's he's here. And um, do you want to talk a little bit about this? Because I had read the article and then I had forwarded it to you. And I don't know if you had seen it before I sent it to you. But um, our friend Shahid Buttar had written an article um, regarding all of this nice praise that Nancy Pelosi is getting for her wonderful tenure, as if somehow she should be lauded for just, you know, the bare minimum of functioning in her job. But whatever, I digress. I, I would so, also say that this is just absolutely ridiculous because they're acting like she's retiring. And in reality, she's only stepping down from leadership. She is still very much going to be a queen maker in politics, which in some ways might be even worse than where she's been before, because the scrutiny is not going to fall on her shoulders the way that it used to. It's going to allow her to operate behind the scenes, and it's it's not going to be good. Um, please, everybody, if you are current, Double K, love you. Thanks for checking oh in. Oh, my goodness. Yes, we it, haven't even it, earned it yet. I feel like we haven't even performed. All right, we're going to have to really bring it now. We're going to definitely feel like, try our very best. It's like paying sure. street performer before they do anything. Oh, uh, well, she's trying to make sure um, I, that And I'm big at, like, paying for street performers. Trying to make sure that we don't go under, that we still have a studio and can do these things and even uh, do it from a distance, which is yeah. wonderful. Uh, stay warm up there in Wisconsin. Um, and obviously in New Jersey, it's not much better, but you know, it's not 17. I can tell you that. So guys, we're going to get started. We're going to talk about, uh, her Royal Highness, Nancy Pelosi, or, you know, I kind of, she's very Nancy Antoinette. She's kind of like ridiculous to me. I can't even, but anyway, um, so our guest, Shahid Buttar, you guys know he ran against Nancy Pelosi, um, in the primary out in San Francisco. And he's, you know, he's a friend and he's very smart and he's a constitutional lawyer and all this stuff. And so he wrote a really good article and he can tell us in great detail all of the wonderful things that are Nancy Pelosi. Shahid Vittar, welcome back to Generational Change. Good to see you both. How are you, Jen? Hey, Paul. Good. Um, it's Peter. Peter, I'm so sorry. No, um, you, have a, apostle. you honest, have a different uh, apostle. It was in the well, same biblical, yeah, exactly. Reference. Well, if I wasn't Peter, I was I was going to be Paul. So oh, I guess go. I can't okay. be that upset over that. So Thank you for uh, not holding it against me. You're very kind. All good. <laughs> no, it's so all good. The, uh, the queen has not officially stepped down, although everyone is acting like she has. Uh, the only thing she has done is decide that she doesn't want to be uh, the money bag lady anymore. Okay, big deal, but... She's still very much one of the most powerful politicians in the country. And uh, uh, watching everybody sing their praises of her over the past week has been, you know, nothing short of excruciating because we all know a lot of it is basically just political posturing. But, you know, people feel the need to do this uh, because the uh, establishment uh, pressure tends to be pretty strong. But for those who don't fawn over her, uh, obviously, it's nice that Jen wouldn't do that. 
tip of the hat to AOC. She's the only noted politician that I saw who did not decide to make a lauding uh, post about how great Pelosi is. Even Bernie stooped to the level of, uh, you know, saying such wonderful things. But I have a feeling you don't have as many nice things to say about the department <laughs> speaker. Of well, let's be clear. That's his representative. So this is he he's the person who she's supposed to be doing work for and isn't like, you know, so tell us, Shahid, tell us about all of the wonderful things that are Nancy Pelosi that we should be so proud of. Well, I would, I would just note particularly the corruption that not just she, because it's not really an ad hominem critique, right? It's an institutional critique yeah. of the Democratic leadership that she effectively directs and has directed. I was going to say before you turn to me uh, that, Peter, you took the words out of my mouth when you were setting up the question. The only place I'd say that I'd say maybe you were a little too charitable is where you were describing her as deciding that she didn't want to be the money bag person anymore. Insofar as you know, having exactly to your point, pass the gavel, she will evade some scrutiny, but she will continue to haul in money for the party to dole out, to use as carrots and sticks, to basically be, as she has been, an enforcer for corporate corruption across the Democratic caucus. And you see that in policy area after policy area. If I remember correctly, Jen, you were on the force to vote train, right? Well, I supported it. You know, I didn't think yeah. it was actually going to be effective. Yeah, I, I'm one of those people that you yeah. throw all the shit against the wall, you know? Right. Well, exactly. And, and when you're running for office, that's exactly the posture that we, you know, that's a thoughtful posture for us to yeah. take. And so, yeah. Ex and so when we saw the, the whole point of force the vote was to force Pelosi to hold a vote so that voters could hold accountable representatives who either did or did not support universal single paid health care as a human right. And the impediment, not just to a policy, but to a process that would enable accountability that could then allow a policy to emerge. It's, you know, the corruption is multi-layered. Add to that 30 years of insider trading and a $200 million stock portfolio that inflects her decision-making more seemingly than the public interest. And then, you know, just as like a cherry on top of the, you know, $50 ice cream maybe is the... Uh, fact that her stock portfolio is so highly performing that there are hedge fund managers and an entire you know exchange traded fund created to follow her around and just do what she does. <laughs> and the idea that the best performing trader on Wall Street happens to be the most powerful Democrat in the House of Representatives is totally coincidental, right? And and what amazes me, you know, I've been pounding this drum for years. The first time anybody in the national press bothered to look at it was 2022. <laughs> it is, it astounds me. That, the, oh, I'm sorry. Go on. No, please. I was just going to say that she wouldn't even, they wouldn't even entertain the concept of not allowing dark money in primaries. Okay. Now, granted, that's the party, but let's be real. Okay. Like that's, they're not going to allow that in primaries. So I'm sorry, please continue. Like I just, I, I'm like, it's, it's astonishing. No, I'm with you. And you know, to the point about her leadership and primaries and the way that the democratic party is weaponized against democracy, the DCCC blacklist comes to mind. Yeah. And I'm really grateful. You know, you shouted out AOC earlier, Peter, you know, shout out to her and the squad also for ending the blacklist because in the previous cycles, Pelosi imposed the rule that any staff person, any consultant who worked with somebody like Jen or me or, Nina, that they were carte blanche disqualified from doing any work with the party. And that was basically a 
you know, mob rule sort of antitrust violation, you might describe it as, that was structurally kneecapping, again, the opportunity for accountability, fluidity, for, for democracy to be realized in action. Um, I'd like to point out that I'm actually currently suffering the consequences of that very real live because when the DCCC fatwa, as I call it, came down, we were unable to hire a compliance person. None of the compliance people were willing to help us because then they would never get another job again. And so I ended up having to hire someone who had state experience, but not federal experience. And I still have an open campaign that hasn't been able to be closed with the FEC. I have now had to hire forensic accountants that are refiling my entire campaign. And this is the result. Yeah. And I was so like from the beginning, this was the person who got paid the most. Like this was the per- this was the job that I took most seriously in hiring, like the, from the beginning. It wasn't like it wasn't thought of, right? But that really goes to show you like how many people are ever gonna be able to pay for those kinds of mistakes because right. you can't get like, it's, it's just, it's horrible. So I mean, you say that I'm like even seething more cause I still haven't been able to finish this. I can relate, you know, when I, when I ran in 2022, it was, you know, largely a test, uh, of whether or not I could get back on the horse after getting knocked off by career Democrats who were incentivized by the blacklist to orchestrate a character assassination. So there's this, it operated in lots of pernicious ways to block voters from having a say in who their representatives are that kind of, and then again, to, you know, draw that circle really tightly, this is under the leadership of a figure who found her way to Congress in a special election and never in the 35 years that she's been in Congress ever once debated an opponent. So the fidelity of the Democratic Party under Pelosi's leadership to anything resembling democracy is a stretch at best. And you know what drew, what sort of forced me to politics was witnessing particularly the military industrial complex that she's always been an active proponent of and a critical proponent of, because as the leader of the Democratic caucus, she has been in a position to, and she has effectively for 20 years, neutralized what could have been an anti-war voice, uh, an anti-militarism voice from a party that has now become entirely uh, complicit in every dimension of militarism you could imagine, from domestic policing to uh, all the security, so-called security measures that we've seen and will see, particularly in the wake of recent tragic events, uh, one fraudulent set of international conflicts after another, 20 years in Afghanistan, Iraq on false pretenses. I'm not going to you know, <laughs> say too much about Ukraine, but if you fast forward the tape there, I'm pretty yeah. sure it ends in a pretty gnarly, ends in a pretty well, gnarly too. It's like Groundhog Day. I feel like I'm in Groundhog yes. Day, except they just change new country, new, new sort of, you know, conscription that they're having to do to manufacture consent, like new thing, but Groundhog Day. And she is definitely right in the eye of all of that. She is symbolic to me of not only what's wrong with the party, but what's wrong in terms of that we don't have any sort of democratic republic anymore. And let us not forget that the only reason that she's where she is, is because of her ability to raise money. The whole point of her is fundraising. That's what you. So when you look at that, it's like her job wasn't helping people or legislating or serving. Her job was to raise money. And I think that people somehow do not tend to pay attention to that enough, because if your primary job is raising money and that's what you do, why would why would we expect you to do anything else? Right. You're you're raising the question, is it a feature or a bug? 
And yeah. Yeah, it is a feature. You're absolutely right. She is the very embodiment of corporate money and politics. Yeah. And and also, you know, the a, a an embodiment of a generation of Democrats. I'm thinking of the Clinton era, the Bill Clinton era, a generation of Democrats whose central strategy was to give away the House. You know, they 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 were big fans of tactical victories at the cost of strategic concessions. And that has been her entire MO for 35 years. And that's a charitable reading of it because I'm presuming there that she might actually have believed any of the things that she said in the 90s. But if you witness her governance since, it has been a sustained slide to the right. And you know, one of the things I talk about in the Substack article, thank you for um, you know, shouting it out, by the way, is this point that not only is she, Pelosi, this unfortunately intergenerationally corrupt oligarch, but the enabling factor, the critical uh, piece of the equation that makes that corruption possible is the abdication and complicity of the press establishment. And the idea that she's going to announce that she's staying in Congress, fulfilling a promise she made years ago to finally pass the gavel and then be lauded as some sort of hero, you know, that's all these odes to how much power she has and the ceilings that she broke. And she absolutely has a great deal of power. And yes, she broke some ceilings, but power used to what end is the question I would raise. And it's striking to me how in a so-called democracy, nobody ever raises that question. <laughs> and even yeah, I've had this ongoing debate with the editor-in-chief of Mother Jones, who's just like an outright Pelosi stand. And it's sickening to me that pro so-called progressive publications are going to be led by people who are just sycophants for oligarchs. And I, you know, from my position as a dissident artist, you know, who tried to offer my neighbors a better choice, I, you know, I don't frankly know what else to do about it other than write um, and make some music about it. And I'll be doing all of that. But, you know, to, to witness the entire political culture uh, just bury its head in the sand <laughs> is a, yet again, uh, you know, Groundhog Day, as you put it, is, you know, disappointing to say the least. Speaking yeah. with Shad Guitar, constitutional attorney and activist in San Francisco who challenged Nancy Pelosi for Congress twice, um, I think it really speaks volumes to sort of the situation when you look at what just happened with FTX. Uh, this guy, Sam Bankman-Fried, definitely needed to have somebody that was working on his behalf to ensure that the people who supposedly were going to get the money, we all know this is a consultant class grift of the highest order, but I would imagine that Pelosi probably had a lot to say in terms of uh, whether it was advice towards Sam Bankman-Fried and probably plenty of others. But I think this is a scandal that's going to get a lot bigger as we go forward. Um, you could say that that's in part, part and parcel because of the fact that the GOP has taken over the House. But I do think that this is a really serious problem. And I do think that in part, it's going to expose exactly you know how significant a role Pelosi has played and the fact that she is the gatekeeper to the billionaire class with the Democratic underlings that basically just sit there and kiss the ring. And they kiss it in the most hypocritical way possible because most of these people who are kissing her ring as long and hard as they can are the same people who never get enough of complaining about how much sway Trump has on the GOP side and how much they gravel at his feet. Well, the truth is, to the GOP's credit, there's a lot of people in that party right now that are doing everything in their capacity to basically get away from him and move to DeSantis. So at least it doesn't mean that you're really solving a problem, but at least there is something tangible there to say, all right, well, we're not just going to answer to Trump 24-7. 
I didn't see any of that. I, I really didn't. Even some of the people that should have at least had the at least the leadership, the courage to say that not everything about Pelosi is great. Even if you said that, I would have at least said, all right, at least they're saying something. No one said anything other than how wonderful this lady is. And I'm thinking she in many ways is the cause of a lot of the pain and suffering that we deal with every day. I don't disagree. I, I would just push back against the like, uh, I hesitate to personalize it. And I sort of, you know, that was implicit in me running for office against her. And I was sort of like, you know, had to do it there. And I see the, the, the other, and I mentioned this in the Substack article too, you know, her passing the baton, the gavel, as it were, to Jeffries likely is in no way a repudiation of all of the things that we're describing. So to personalize it falls, I think, into the same trap as the creation of the cults of personality surrounding her in the first place, because you can, you can swap the face and the name. The dynamic, unfortunately, persists. And, and it is the institutional character of the corruption that interests me. I only ran for office because of the role that she plays in it and the fact that she was you know, my voice in Congress. Uh, you know, when I look at the continuity in the party, despite the veneer of change, and I think the way I titled the post was something about an oligarch um, you know, uh, passing the baton while clinging to power and, and, and her staying in the house while effectively anointing a successor does liberate her from all of the scrutiny and allows her to be, I think, maximally powerful from the shadows. And I think it's absolutely right to lay at her feet much of the legacy of the corporate democratic leadership. Um, I would just hesitate to lay it all at her feet, recognizing that She's surrounded by layers of sycophants, not just her staff, but dozens of members of Congress, and none of them should escape accountability here. And I know that none of, I know that you're not suggesting that they should. I of just course. fear that if we if we focus the spotlight so much on the figure of Nancy, we do things like overlook her daughter, Christine, who is waiting in the wings to likely follow her mother's footsteps into the seat if Nancy is successful in engineering a special election of the sort that favored her when she won her seat back in 1987. And, you know, it's the corruption here is at least multi-generational within a family, and then it's institutional across a caucus. And I fear that the folks who are going to be wielding the gavel in her wake will leave us. The one thing I will say in their credit is they're not already fantastically wealthy. Uh, but, you know, let's fast forward that tape and see how that goes in a few years. You know, if the insider trading face and lockdown. Um, could I actually say one thing when you were talking about Sam Bankman-Fried? I don't want to say specifically about him, but the figure that came to mind when you're talking about that kind of layer of individuated corruption and the complicity of figures in D.C., including Nancy Pelosi, the figure that brought to my mind, and for me, is our former president. And the charade that so many people participated in, pretending that she was attempting to hold him accountable through an impeachment process that she delayed for months of course. and then affirmatively limited so that specifically what would not come up in the articles of impeachment was anything related to self-enrichment. Why, you might ask, because she's up to her own neck in it. And so the constitutional cost that we the people have paid because of the co-optation of that particular, particularly pivotally situated, equally corrupt, ultimately conservative figure is incalculable. Yet journalists who are theoretically the guardians of the store, you know, the, the people with a supposed professional commitment to ethics, transparency, accountability, they're nowhere to be found. You know, it's, it's almost like someone's been robbing the bank for decades in plain sight. And the 
you know, cops are like rolling up the red carpet and bringing them champagne. And I just, you know, I, I don't know why though. I mean, the same people that own Nancy Pelosi are the same people that own our media. So corporations more than people, but I'm with you. Yeah. That's what I mean. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I I know they're corporations. That's what I mean. It's wait. So she's beholden to, to those corporations and those are the same corporations that are, why would they like, it's all the same thing. So I, you know, and I think that people don't realize, like I very much ran for the same reason. I wish that my representative was not a corporate whore. I do. I, I wish that, like, I wish, I wish that she were even just, eh, you know, like, like she was just sitting there. Like we had one that was in a district North of us, nice enough guy, harmless, whatever. And, you know, like someone like that, but no, she's, filthy, like, like in the most ridiculous way with the most like obvious appearance of impropriety, it's conflicts of interest all over the place. And so it's like, what else are you going to do? But like, like, I, I wish you weren't like that. And then I wouldn't have ever thought to do that. You know, right. it's not like, it's not like fun thing to do. Right. Yeah. I think you and I both encountered this. There's at least some number of trolls who would characterize us as ambitious when ultimately we were people who were sort of driven to step into the line of fire because we couldn't bear to watch from a sideline. And, you know, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of all of us who've run the challenge entrenched incumbents and and the work that we've done. I just got off the phone maybe an hour ago with Matthew Ho in uh, North Carolina, Green Party Senate candidate who I've been inspired by, you know, and I think all of us have had such uh, disturbingly parallel experiences from the emergence of weaponized lies and race yeah. after race after race as, you know, it's the set, it's another thing I talk about, not in the Substack article you were talking about, but I think one or two ago that I published Democrats versus democracy, I think was the title of that one. But I talk in that piece, it, it reflects on, um, Ryan Grimm, who, you know, the DC, uh, bureau chief at the intercept, he had a pair of long form pieces in the last six months. And so I sort of respond to those and, and fill in the right. gaps that he declines to state despite sort of observing the perimeters around these gaps and just the, the presence of what I will, for lack of a better set of terms, chalk up to identitarian hypocrisy. You've got a democratic party that relies on communities of color, on LGBTQ communities for support while in Western Massachusetts running a homophobic campaign to neutralize Alex Morris while in San Francisco waging an Islamophobic campaign to neutralize me while in Ohio waging a campaign Characterizing Nina as an angry black woman was the the term that the a particular figure at a PR agency, SKDK, is an agency that represents SK, uh, SKDK uh, or SKD Knickerbockers, uh, the uh, the term, and that's Anita that's right. Dunn and Hillary Rosen. That's exactly right. Hillary Rosen is the person I'm thinking of who apologized publicly for smearing yeah. Nina Turner, and this is the same firm that represents Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi. But she's not really. But she's not really sorry. Let's be honest. No, isn't that that's the same woman who told Nina that she didn't have standing to quote Dr. King. And I like I was sitting there watching that video and I'm looking at Nina and I'm like, oh, this woman, like the grace that of this woman. A lot of her. Oh, well, for enough, someone uh, that looks like Hillary Rosen to say that to, it was it was jaw dropping. Sure. Wow. And I and I actually remember texting Nina shortly thereafter and just saying, I don't know how you kept it together, but oh, you I... had every reason to literally cut her throat in that moment and you didn't do it. I, I don't oh. know. You would have had 
carte blanche to go after her because that was the you white see liberal, that, Shahid. You didn't that see was the that. white moderate liberal living in, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area who thinks that they can that they <laughs> are the most dangerous racist in society because they're considered untouchable. But in this case, you know, she decided to do it in a way uh, that, I you know, Nina, I could tell Nina was shocked by it. But you know what? How shocking should it be? I know people who have said the, the woman same has thing. grace. Yeah. Let me tell you. I yeah. would have lost my shit with that one. <laughs> like there is just, I couldn't believe it. But yet that's the what she is, said. The bigotry is worse in the Democratic side than in the Republican side, because in the Republican side, it's right in your face. Right. If there's somebody who is waving a Confederate flag and saying, you know, may the South rise again, you at least know where that person stands. They're not hiding anything. They're very transparent about it. But somebody who's on the liberal side who believes in, oh, if we only could take care of these poor brown and black people. But the truth is they don't want them anywhere near your neighborhoods. They don't want them anywhere near your schools. Right. And they certainly don't want them anywhere near their kids if they're in the dating age. So but there's a lot of Black Lives there. Matter sign in the window. Oh, absolutely. Right. It doesn't actually translate into tangible policy results that will actually change the problem, will fix the problem. And that is all that really matters. And that is essentially where this movement kind of stands right now, because in many ways it's kind of rudderless. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of egos, um, particularly in the non-corporate progressive political lane, where we're constantly trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to do this? Let's say post Bernie, if you will. I mean, from Jen and, and my perspectives, uh, this is all about labor and how we unite the workers of this country. Uh, and there's a lot of people who are workers in this country who can be as left as Bernie Sanders and as right as Donald Trump. But they agree on a living wage. They agree on universal health care. They agree on a clean environment. They agree on criminal justice reform. And they agree on ending these senseless wars. And if we can bring, which mostly falls into the category of what I consider to be probably progressive left and libertarian. It's center populist. It's populist. It's populist. Yeah. yeah, we got a friend Metaopoly in the chat who's definitely, you know, a Trump yeah. order, if you will. But agrees with a lot of these policies. Yeah, but agrees with a lot of these policies. And so yeah. to me, I, I I believe firmly that the only way we're really going to change this narrative as we go forward, because the system's falling apart. I think everybody recognizes that at this point. You know, what do we do to actually steer the course correctly? I think it's through labor combined with the environmental movement. Your thoughts on that as we close the conversation? I don't think we ultimately have a choice around how the narrative gets set. We organize in all of our different communities. And frankly, we hope anyone pays attention is sort of how I've always done it. And I absolutely agree with you about the centrality of labor. It's one reason why, frankly, if I lean too hard on that analysis, I would jump off a bridge because labor has been thoroughly co-opted and weaponized against itself. Uh-huh. There's a new wave of labor agitation happening and you organizing, you know, Amazon, Starbucks come to mind. That's inspiring expansion of unions. And in the case of Amazon, it's an entirely new independent union free of the corporately co-opted unions of the past. And so that to me is very exciting. The expansion of unions that are ultimately beholden to corporate bosses, like the ones here in San Francisco. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing, but I am you know, very excited about the ALA. Certainly, I'm excited about the generational consciousness around labor that's emerging. I ultimately don't think you know, narrative wins it for us. At the end of the day, you know, what wins it is how many people show up to do a thing. And you know, I've witnessed so many 
unfortunate collective action dilemmas. Uh, so many careers get traded for movement principles. So many organizations get co-opted. Uh, so many journalists get rolled. You know, I, I've sort of, um, to be perfectly frank with you, lost my faith in electoral democracy. I don't see a lot of hope for this country. Um, yeah. and, and, and another way to put that is it's not just that our neighbors are, are ignorant. The ignorance is institutionally enforced. And that to me is terrifying. I mean, it's like a, it's like a yeah. scenario out of a science fiction movie. And I don't think many Americans understand how uh, thick, thickly the veil has fallen over what they are permitted to see. No, no, no example of this to me rings more clearly than I did. Neither of the two Substack articles that we've mentioned, but a different one, I talk about Julian Assange and the idea that the press core can witness a publisher being prosecuted, bipartisan prosecution, for the crime of revealing state secrets, including the military killing of Reuters journalists, and that not a single American editor or publisher has been, even let their readers know it's happening <laughs> when their own interests are at stake, when their own capacity to perform their constitutional function is at stake. And the press is entirely out to lunch. I contrast this with in the Vietnam era, when the Pentagon Papers were released, I think it was 17 newspapers around the country. There were that many independent right. uh, vectors of ownership at the time. But they, they organized one after the other. The Justice Department got injunctions to stop. First, I think it was the Washington Post from printing the classified secret analysis about the truth of the war in Vietnam and how everything from the Gulf of Tonkin forward that the American people had been told was a lie, kind of like the war in Afghanistan many years later. Uh, when, when the Washington Post got shut down, they handed them off to the Baltimore Sun and they passed them off to the New York Times and they passed them off to the you know, St. Louis Post-Dispatch and it went around the country and the Pentagon Papers got published and the American public people got to read what not a single publisher in the country would print today. And right. I just find that structural erosion of the press and its institutional capacity to enable transparency is... It should be alarming to anyone. I think the only reason it's not, you know, it's sort of the analogy of the frogs getting boiled in water, but like the water in America is boiling and yeah. what passes for democracy here, I think is, I fear past a breaking point. It, you know, it continues to stagger on with the veneer of, of legitimacy to people who don't look too carefully. But, you know, when I look at everything from, you know, the role in money in politics, it's interesting that we don't, people don't even talk about that frontally anymore, even though it's like an open subversion right. of democracy by capitalism. And then, you know, you add to it these layers of demagoguery, the lies that we confront in our respective races, the leveraging and reinforcement of stereotypes, the, uh, the, the role of militarism in the, in the background here. You know, when you talked about uh, Hillary Rosen, um, trying to lecture Nina about quoting Dr. King, his intersecting evil speech has always rung very clearly in my mind. And, and to think of what we've done in this country with the intersecting evils, just wrapped ourselves more thoroughly around all of them. And, you know, the militarism, the racism, the capitalism, all of them define American public policy to a far greater extent than any conception of the public interest or what working Americans need. And, and, and the fact that that's bipartisan, the fact that Democrats in leadership under, again, Nancy Pelosi, whose you know, announcement sort of brought us together today, have not articulated or demonstrated a meaningfully different poll in that debate. You know, we could go back to like Build Back Better and you know, that whole dance. And it's at the end of the day, it's all rhetorical. What hits the floor is what passes and what the president signs into law. And it is 
it's meager, you know? I mean, I, I look at Biden's legacy and I would just say, I mean, my, my life, last closing thought is I think it's imperative that Democrats field a candidate to Biden's left to primary him and push him out. If he is the candidate in 2024, I fear a all the things that Democrats, you know, wave in people's faces to get them to care about the process, you know, Trump this, Trump that. Biden can't beat him again. No. Fear. But um, I don't think anybody can on the Democratic side. So I, I don't no, think that I think right now, yeah, at this point right now, I think it's I mean, if I'm a betting person, especially because the GOP had five million more votes in this uh, in this midterm election. That's one thing no one wants to talk about. Right. Uh, they had five million more votes than the Democrats did. If that's not a massive red flag for the 2024 election and the way the Democrats are playing it right now, it's almost a guarantee that either Trump or DeSantis is the next president. So we have to do everything in our power to start building as you suggested, Shahid, outside of the electoral uh, avenue, uh, we have to build a labor movement that basically will force both sides of the political spectrum to have to answer to what we're doing. That's really what it comes down to more than anything else. And I do believe um, that that will what will win the day in the future. We have to start. We if we focus only or if we focus primarily on electoral politics at this point we will be setting ourselves backwards. So right. with that That's said, thank you for having me. So good to be with right. you. Bro. Thank you for coming on. Substack. Check him out on Substack. His articles are, uh, I mean, obviously well-written, but thank you so much for coming on, Shahid. It's You're always good to be with you. It's my honor. Thank you for being with me. Shout out, I think it was to Carla in the chat uh, who'd written earlier. I meant to say that before. But oh, that's so sweet. All right. Before. Thank you, Carla. Cool. Right Thanks, Have a good Shahid. Night, Bye. See you, brother. Jen, can you put the scroll along, uh, along the bottom, please? Okay, hold on. Which scroll? This one? Yes, that's it. That's okay. It. All right, hold on. This is what happens. If you want to control it, then you need to log in. I've told you this a million times. It's not complicated. I talk Clearly it is if you're messing up. <laughs> I do it when I'm away. I log in as a, whatever. I'm not going to argue about it with you. I don't so know guys, what happened. I, I, I did what you asked. You me. didn't log in. You came in through the link, which I told you not to do. I'm not going to get into this with you. You know what I mean? It's just not worth it. So guys- um, for those of you who aren't aware, last month I did a series, well, it was a day of panels called Deconstructing Zionism. Um, and our next guest was somebody who was meant to be on that, who we'd wanted to be on that and couldn't, couldn't be there that day. And, and which is fine, but so we get to talk to him now. And, um, obviously we don't know, only have to talk about the, the Zionism issue, but I think it's very important and I am way down that rabbit hole. So, um, as sort of a part of our Deconstructing Zionism series, I want to welcome Phil Agnew to the show. He is, hi, hey. it's so hey. good to see you. Great to see you um, as well. And tell me all your titles. I mean, I know you're dream defenders. I know that you're like a lot of different things, but I just know that you're very involved. <laughs> no, I've got one title right now, and it is uh, I co-direct an organization called Black Men Build. Um, oh. So that is the only and sole title that I possess right now. Um, and that's enough for me. Our goal with Black Men Build is to bring more black men to the left. So that's the simple explanation of it. Um, and that is about it. You know, I got probably some other uh, uh, titles that I just throw around, but that's the one I'm using for today. Okay, so originally you were going to come on and be part of a panel that I had. We did three different panels. Mm -hmm. And the third one was the intersection between Zionism, 
or the Palestinian solidarity with the Black liberation movement and mm-hmm. the connection between those two things. And it's always been very interesting to me. And growing up as a proper little Zionist in North Miami Beach, I was very, mm-hmm. very indoctrinated um, with a lot of stuff. And yeah. some of that stuff, and now in retrospect, I see that a lot of Black leaders that normally my parents would have been like in line with, mm-hmm. but they were considered anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I and I and I grew up, and n- now I see what what the connection is, and it's really interesting to me. And so, um, talk a little bit about that, the intersection between the two movements. I mean, obviously oppressed people and and stuff, but this. I mean, I don't know if you are you familiar with the whole history. I'm sure you are, right? Uh, you know what? I, I always like to hedge a little bit and say there's probably more I could learn, but I'm pretty familiar with the history. And um, I want to, you know, to start this off, thank you all for the grace. I'm glad that I could come on this time around. And also always want to show love and appreciation to my comrade Ahmed Abuznaid, who is a classmate of mine. He went to Florida State. I went to Florida A&M, but we partied in uh, we were in the same fraternity and same movements together in college. He was really the person who really personalized um, the struggle, um, but also educated me a great deal. So I always want to bring him in um, because yeah. uh, the bulk of what I know and have been able to experience has been because of him. Um, and so what we see and what we we first Dream Defenders during my time when I had the other title as, of co-director of Dream Defenders, we took a delegation to Palestine in 2015, um, and that was organized by Ahmed at the time. And we saw what we were doing, not as a, a, a new development in our movement, but as a continuation in a long line of Black radical leaders who saw common cause with the Palestinian struggle. The Stokely Carmichael's or Kwame Ture's of the world, the Malcolm X's of the world, um, even though he is conjured as a supporter sometimes of Israel, um, Martin Luther King's of the world, who who really spoke up and said what is happening in Israel starting from 1948 to some people and before to other people is a travesty. Is genocidal and has now been declared by a number of world uh, uh, um, world leaders and from the UN as a, a apartheid project in Israel. And so, what we were doing as Dream Defenders, we saw was just standing on their shoulders, once again declaring that the Zionist project in Israel um, is illegitimate, but also. Um, has no right to be spoken of in the same way that we speak of civil rights struggles here. Um, And what we see now, you know, a month ago, I don't know if we would have been talking about, you know, Kyrie and, you know, some of these other people. Um, But the the slander of uh, anti-Semitism has been used to cover up uh, the great atrocities that is the daily life of Palestinians Um, within the confines of what is considered Israel today. Um, And so that history is rich, not just in um, uh, organizational leaders, black organizational leaders, but also poets and artists um, who spoke, um, who speak, you know, it is their work to speak eloquently, but who spoke eloquently about the struggle of Palestinians. Um, And uh, so for us, um, that history is rich and we're trying to extend that history into into the modern day, even though um, I think we're we're witnessing even more um, 
accusations of anti-Semitism from people who speak up for Palestinian rights. And I something else I'm learning, I'm actually reading a book right now that it's a compilation of different people's stories, both like former Zionists and Palestinians. And it's the name of the book is A Land with a People. Oh, obviously oh. in reference to have you read it it came out like a year or so ago and i no, 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 no. I, I haven't read it but but obviously there 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 you know the the argument that was always put out is that there was a land without a people for a people without a land you know right so, we yeah. were taught that yeah. i was taught that my grandparents were taught that i really do believe and i've said this before that if my grandparents and great grandparents knew what was really going on, mm -hmm. that they would not have been okay with it. And in fact, most Jews were not okay with it until right. post-Holocaust, which of course we know the Zionists capitalized on that. Yes. Um, it really did help. And it didn't, it didn't help that the United States was turning Jews away as part of being in cahoots mm -hmm. with the Zionists to help mm -hmm. them form the state of Israel. Like mm -hmm. knowing this now, what I know, it's like, I try to tell people, it's not just finding out that Santa Claus isn't real. Right. It's finding out he's a mass murderer. Right. right. People right. do right. not understand how this yeah. is for like us to to process. But something I wanted to point out that I'm learning in this book was this complete link between Zionism and racism. And mm -hmm. it's even been demonstrated. I don't know if you knew this, like throughout historically in the history of Israel, where they'll bring in either Ethiopian Jews yeah. Or, or Yemeni Jews or darker Jews to help build up their Jewish population. Yes. But yet those dark skinned Jews get treated completely differently yes. in the state. So it's like they're really wanting to use them for the fact that they're Jewish, but mm -hmm. they want to like de-black them, de-Arabize yes. them. Yes. Well, well um, I had a, and obviously I would never, ever, ever, you know, I know that the the understanding as a young Jewish person that you were given the education about Israel was extreme. But I had a similar kind of mind blown moment as yeah. a person. Um, I grew up. Uh, I'm a Christian. I grew up a Christian. I'm not anymore, but I grew up a Christian. And uh, so we grew up with a great reverence for Israel. Um, we were taught a great reverence for Israel, both past, you know, both the biblical Israel and the current one. And we joined those together like like what. And I remember even just telling Ahmed one time that, you know, when I was a kid, I wasn't watching the news and remembering everything and staying up on everything. But for some reason, I knew who Yitzhak Ravine was. You know, and I, you know, I knew. Who, and I was like, I don't know why I knew who Yitzhak Ravine was, but it was just a part of, you know, our understanding of the conflict over there. So I can empathize. And I would even take your analogy even farther. It would also be like if you found out the North Pole belonged to someone else completely different, too. So he's not Santa's not only a mass murderer, but he stole the North Pole from someone. <laughs> um, but but um, what we learned when we went there is that Ethiopian Jews are moved there, um, uh, uh, darker Jews <laughs> moved there as a part of construction projects. And then there is an Ethiopian Jewish town that is located right next to a toxic dump as well. Um, and they've been fighting for years to, you know, <laughs> to receive uh, better than substandard housing and conditions. Um, I've always said this, and I think it's a quote that is mine. And I, I always say it, say that because I heard other people say it. And I'm like, did I really say that? But being in Israel is like being in the past the present and the future of the United States all at the same time. So you see, you, you see different, 
you know, as a black person, and, and we did delegations with native folks from the U.S. as well. And so they their perception of Israel as a settler colonial state was, you know, but as a black person going there and seeing the checkpoints, seeing um, how how lowly Palestinians are treated and also darker skinned Jews are treated and then seeing then seeing those same darker skinned Jews um, really, really fight for um, acceptance into that country and um, have to serve in the military and become some of the most virulent anti-Palestinian, you know, officers, you start to realize and start to see how the Black experience in the United States and the level of technological advancement of their, of their apartheid state, you start to see, oh, that's coming. That's that's on the way. You know, that if that hasn't made it to the to the ghettos and slums of the United States, that's definitely on the way. And so um, the, the project is very, very advanced. Um, and it's not just through propaganda, but it's through policy, it's through the way that they police the movements of people, the way that they talk. And, and, and I'll just say this, and you know, I'll stop my rambling on, but uh, it just blows my mind. I went this year, I, I went to Palestine this year, I was there over the summer, and uh, this was my third time there. And uh, every time I go, I believe that I've uh, now come to a point where I've understood what's happening. And so nothing will surprise me. And uh, this time being there, uh, once again, um, seeing uh, now uh, that some Israeli schools are starting to bus Palestinian students into their schools. And, um, and wanting to scream, don't let your child go to that school, you know, and even though they've destroyed your school in your Palestinian village, um, you believe me, you do not want your child to go to that school in that Israeli city. It is going to spell doom for your movement, spell doom. It's yeah. going to, you know, and so um, even just seeing that and witnessing that um, caused so much turmoil in me. Um, um, and to, to just experience Israel firsthand and see how they're learning from the U.S. and the U.S. is learning from them is a very sickening thing to understand. Yeah. I mean, make no mistake. They're us. They're an arm of us. Like we're, it's all just the empire, right? Like, I mean, yeah. they're us and how they treat the natives. And I want to like one of the key things for me that is so important about this is completely detangling Judaism from Zionism. Please. And and, uh, and that's something that a lot of people don't. Now, I actually think that the crap that Kanye was saying, and I don't even know the other basketball guy, whatever, that to me actually does sound kind of anti-Semitic. Well, to um, be 100% clear, Kanye yeah. absolutely was anti-Semitic, knew yeah. he was anti-Semitic, said he was anti-Semitic, and it will continue to actually go down that road. Um, and so I'm, I would never in, in, in a million years have any defense for anything that he said. And he knows what he's saying as well. Right. I mean, but th like when we normally use that, like when people would say, oh, Nina Turner, she's anti-Semitic. Like that to me mm -hmm. is infuriating as a mm -hmm. Jewish person. And it is there are completely different things. And I'm actually very proud to be a Jewish person. Mm -hmm. um, Judaism existed long before Zionism. And I yeah. like to think it's going to exist long after it. Mm -hmm. And Zionism is a white European concept of colonialism. Yes. And I, people need to understand that because there were, and this fascinates people, there's Palestinian Jews. Oh, yeah. There are Palestinian Jews. I know. It's crazy. Yes. And they were displaced and they are treated as lesser. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. And they are not given the same type of privileges that the Ashkenazi Jews, the white Jews from mm-hmm. Europe that settled there are given. So like Zionism is a form of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And the, the sooner that people understand that, the better off we are. And it is nothing to do with being Jewish. At In all. fact, there's a lot of white evangelical Christian uh, Zionists. They mm-hmm. don't give a crap about the Jews. I no, know they, they don't, don't care about the Jews. Yes, they 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 actually pray for your destruction uh, so, so it can precipitate um, Jesus returning. Um, uh, you, you know, it's uh, um, and I know you were trying to jump in as well, but it, I, I it is a bald-faced power and privilege move. Um, the, and in, in, in so many ways, if you've read, and I, I don't pretend to have read all the Torah, but if you have read any amount of, frankly, the Bible, the Torah, the Quran, um, Zionism is an affront to everything that the Torah represents, uh, everything that Judaism really genuinely, truly represents what Hillel speaks of. What, and, and you and you and 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 to see it, it really hurts. I grew up Christian to, and, and it's not my religion anymore, but I believe I grew up under the best of it uh, or, or the, the most the, the most the, the best teachings of it. And uh, to witness white evangelicals and what they have done um, in this country under the guise of, uh, you know, Christianity um, is is abhorrent. So uh, it is a white supremacist project. Uh, it should have no place in in Judaism, and it should it should never be uttered in the same sentence, right? Um, but yeah. that is how they've they you know they've been able to use that for many many decades as their cover. I feel used. That's how I feel. As a Jewish person, I feel used Mm -hmm. and lied to and manipulated. And I would like to encourage other Jewish people to recognize this and speak out accordingly because that's the problem. And I don't want to be affiliated with that. I know I'm not with them. Those are not my people. But I was in Israel a long, long time ago. It was summer of 87. Mm -hmm. I have family there. I've had family that have lived as settlers in the West Bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it abhorrent. I, I, I would like to go back. I'd like to go as part of some sort of delegation. Like I'm always asking, like, if you ever hear of anything coming up, please forward it to me because I'd like to go. I will. Uh, and, and look, I, I'll go anywhere. Like I'm not scared. I'm not, you know, whatever, I, but I want to go with the right people mm-hmm. who know. I can't go there and be like that white Jewish girl taking pictures on top of stuff that I have no idea what was really about. Like I'm, I'm mortified. Granted I was 16. Yeah. So, so I didn't know, but um, now that I know I'm, I'm mortified like Mm -hmm. of, of how I like how entitled um, and just the whole concept. And I know you've heard of birthright, right? Of course. Okay. okay. So I didn't do birthright because I had already been to Israel and you ha- once you've been, you don't qualify for birthright. Mm-hmm. But now when I hear that, it disgusts me. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's disgusting to me. And I, and I, yeah. So I'm just, I'm just griping at this point. Peter, what were you wanting to get in and say? Well, we're speaking with Phil Agnew of Black Men Build. You know, I actually was, uh, I'm in New Jersey right now and I mm-hmm. am a big basketball fan and mm-hmm. I happen to be a Nets fan. And I, was at Bar- and I was at the Barclays Center last night. And when I showed up, yeah. you had about, I'm not kidding, it had to be at least four to 500 black Hebrew Israelites that were, you know, basically running a barricade outside of the arena. And yeah. at the time, I didn't know what it was, 
but they looked very organized and very serious. And I had an inkling that it had something to do with Kyrie, Kyrie yeah. Irving, Jen. That's who we're talking about. I know who it is. I just don't like, I'm just not, I know it had something to do with, he put a link to a movie that was like a Hitler thing. Like, I just don't know the details enough to comment on it. There was something that I thought was very, um, somewhat very awe-inspiring in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. And it's very true because let's say for the sake of argument that he's wrong. Uh, Black men always seem to get thrown under the bus faster than anybody else. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people that are guilty of saying a lot of atrocious things about Jews. I personally yep. believe most of anti-Semitism stems from Zionism. I, mm-hmm. I believe that in my in my Except group. for it existed long before Zionism. That's the Absolutely. that's where your problem. That's where you're like the reason that Zionism started was sort of in a response to the anti-Semitism. I'm just saying it's a chicken and an egg. Mm-hmm. It is a chicken and an egg, but it's like anything in life. The second that somebody figures out how to screw everyone else for their own personal gain, they're going to use it to their advantage, much mm-hmm. like anything else. It's like somebody who, you know, this. it's like I know people who trade on the stock market that are very honest actors, but there's always mm-hmm. going to be somebody who's going to take advantage of that situation. Just like mm-hmm. there are people who very much believe in the protection of Israel because there are many people on this world who want to wipe Jews off the face of the earth. There's also people who recognize that and use that, use the, in, in the, they use Zionism, if you will, as a shield from any real constructive criticism. They basically say, if you say anything bad about Jews, even an inkling that you think there's something wrong with the way that they conduct business, you're out. And mm-hmm. so when I saw those individual gentlemen protesting in front of the arena last night, I thought, I don't have to agree in almost any way with what they're doing. But what it shows me is that if there's real solidarity for, especially for black men in a way that we probably haven't really seen before, that's gonna have a lot of positive effects within their own community. And it's also going to give the Zionist movement a little bit of pause because at least the conversation is happening now about the differences between Judaism and Zionism. Everyone wants to throw it together into basically one pot and mix it all together. And that's not what it is. So mm-hmm. having this conversation right now, especially with the backdrop of what I saw last night, I think as, as much as that may frighten people in some ways, I think there's also something to be said about the fact that there is solidarity when somebody is just arbitrarily trying to, let's say, just throw another successful black man, you know, baby out with the bathwater type situation. Yeah, I think it's super complex. We actually did a call last week at this time with Dream Defenders uh, and a number of other folks, Jared Ball and folks talking about this. Um, It's super complex. And I know people always say that, but uh, uh, especially around Israel, you know, everyone tries to make it so complex. We, We see it pretty simple. But around this specific conversation, Peter, it is very complex. And, and I just want to try to lay out some of it um, because I like to be understood. And um, so black people, um, in particular, sometimes black men, I, I think I think it's interchangeable. I don't think more often um, than, than black women, but more often than not, black people um, usually take the biggest whippings for public shortcomings and failings. Um, The things that Donald Trump has said, uh, the things that frankly, most Republicans who have run for office over the last 10 years have said, um, what Kyrie did, because he really didn't say anything, pales in comparison. We're not talking about Kanye at all. We're talking about Kyrie pales in comparison to what the political discourse in the mainstream has been from white men predominantly um, around the Jewish people, 
Jewish people in this country and the world over. But Kyrie is facing excoriation about what he posted, not what he said. Now, that, so that's one thing that I fully agree with you on, um, Peter, that um, it is often the case that when a black person runs afoul of some norm, that they're gonna, they'll lose everything. You know, it's, it's, it's over for them. Public whipping boy, you don't wanna be made an example of, don't be like this person. So I fully agree with you there. Another layer to it, what Kyrie posted, I haven't watched the film, but I grew up a black man in the country. I feel like I know everything that was in the film without seeing it. Um, is a part of a thread of, of, of really, what is really a black Christian thing, right? And what I mean by that, um, it is a part of a thread of, uh, uh, of, 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 of black knowledge gathering that says that since we have been so maligned in the United States, so mistreated in the United States, that we must be the original children of Israel, that our time in this country is analogous to the 40 years in the wilderness spent by, in the Bible, the, the Israeli, is, uh, the children of Israel. And so we must be the true children of Israel. That's what was in the film. And that is also the ideology espoused by those 400 to 500 men out there yesterday. I don't subscribe to uh, that ideology. Um, furthermore, I think that um, while it was an incredible showing of solidarity by a people who feel that someone who made a mistake is being overly maligned by a very powerful group of people, I do oftentimes wish that we had a greater level of political understanding in our solidarity. And so it did, was exciting to watch yesterday, people standing up for another black person. Um, and uh, I wish that uh, there was a greater understanding of the political terrain that we're operating on. Um, and also that group of men who were out there yesterday, um, in, a, in, in accordance with their beliefs that black people are the original Jews, um, then espouse a whole bunch of other convoluted theories about who is masquerading as Jews today and what should be done with them, which I can't get with either. Um, and so when I say it's complex, I really only scratch the surface of the different feelings and thoughts that I had witnessing it. I think Kyrie is a brother who is just like in a lot of ways I was 20 years ago. And what I mean is I watch Hidden Colors. I don't know if y'all have heard of it or seen it, but you know, it's, mm -hmm. you know, when you're discovering a whole bunch, when you're opening up to the lies, for, for instance, Jen, you know, the place that you were when, you're, when you were and maybe are, I don't wanna, um, but when you were discovering about Israel and the truth yeah. of it, man, you're just wide open. You're just wide open, you know, like I remember when I was first finding out stuff, I, I don't know if if somebody I really respected came to me and started talking about aliens, I might've just been like, tell me more, you know, <laughs> <laughs> tell me more. And um, so Kyrie is a very public person um, who's experiencing that level. And so do I, do I think that 
um, the anti-Semitic um, label was thrown at him wrongly and unjustly? Absolutely. A thousand percent. Do I think that film that he shared was riddled with anti-Semitic tropes and a whole bunch of random ideologies? Absolutely. And both of those things are absolutely true. Do I think that he watched the movie, had his mind blown and wanted to talk about his mind being blown by with other people? Absolutely as well. You know, and so that's the complexity of it. Um, but I don't agree with the film. I, not, it's not a matter of agreeing, but it's just factually incorrect. Um, well, that's right. Like I always say, you can have your opinions. You're not entitled to your own facts. Right. And this is one of the things that I I know as somebody who was raised in a Jewish community. I mean, I was raised in the second largest Jewish ghetto in this country mm -hmm. um, outside of Brooklyn, which is North Miami Beach in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And um, like we were not taught proper history. We mm -hmm. just weren't. We weren't taught it. And and so you can't expect people to just spontaneously know things. You know, now it's so much easier because we have so much more access to information. But in the 70s, it wasn't like I was going to sit there and look some stuff up on Google and just try to figure some stuff out. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were lied to. And, and it really makes, makes it clear to me how much we're still doing it now with current things. Like you see this even now with them wanting to change stuff that um, what they're calling critical race theory and all, all right. of these types of things that are essentially excuses for changing the story and changing the facts and the narrative, which then 40 years down the road, 100 years down the road, you're going to have a whole nother generation of people that have no clue. Mm -hmm. you, you know, Jen, there is so much more access. What we say within Black Men Build is there's so much more content, but no context at all. So I would even say in the 70s, at least, you know, you were lied to, but you were lied to because there was a truth that was understood and they had to hide that truth and tell you a lie. Now there is no truth. There is your opinion. Remember what we were just talking about. There's, and so we're in such a convoluted place. I think we need more people who speak truth, who do research, who are able to communicate, who are willing to communicate and who can engage with this these outright lies in a way that's respectful. And by respectful, I don't mean uh, just like respectability. I mean, just remember when you're talking about it, Jen, and, and Peter, I'm sure you, like, just remember when you didn't know everything and just come from that place. Like, I remember when I, I remember when I watched this documentary and it told me some shit that wasn't true. And uh, I went around telling everybody to watch it for like two years, you know, or, or like six months or whatever. Um, and I think that that's super, super important for right now. And I think all of this, if I can, if we can take a, a deep breath, we're talking and we've talked now for 20 minutes, which I think is very important. But all of it obfuscates the fact that our true enemies, right, we're, we're, we're arguing across from each right. other. You know, we're arguing laterally and sometimes punching down if there's anybody below us at some point. But none of us are talking about, you know, the five or six people who are running this entire country, who are running the world, the great aggregation of power amongst the wealthy, wealthy blacks, wealthy Jews, wealthy Irish, wealthy Italians, wealthy Brazilians, wealthy Israelis, the wealth, the, the uniting factor amongst all of them is their inordinate, in the inordinate ordinance amount of wealth 
that they have aggregated across race, right? It's very rare that they're black, but across race, geography, um, et cetera. And uh, I think we have a duty to, to wade in the waters of the current events and current conversations in the social milieu, but also to remind people that none of the, maybe one or two of them, but none of these people we're talking about are the enemy. Right. It's class war. We're in a class war. So let me ask you this. And this is something like, and I'm sincerely like how, because I don't, you, you can't reduce it to that because obviously there's all these other things that are at play, but we all know that like to me, and I've always said this, I don't care what language my oligarchs speak. I don't care if they're Russian or Chinese or from Saudi Arabia. It's all the same to me. It's, mm-hmm. it's a class thing. Mm-hmm. But how do we properly deal with the sub issues without getting distracted, without getting distracted, but being very sort of mindful of race issues or LGBTQ issues or things that are clearly there that are being used and weaponized? How do we do that, but sort of still keep our eye on the prize? Because, you know, those things are real. Mm-hmm. Um. I'll I'll go quick because I know Peter was trying to jump in too. I think and feel strongly that it is the duty of organizers. I I I consider myself an organizer, not an activist. To ha- we have to hold all of it. We have to be able to do both. We're we're not we don't have the luxury of the binary anymore. We have to be able to say. I know and I understand that you experience this white supremacist capitalist empire differently because you're trans, um, that you've experienced different traumas because you're trans or, or, or because you're uh, differently able or that as a black woman in this country, you feel often that a black man is a part of the ranks of the enemy because he is the person beating you. He is the person cheating on you. I understand all of that. And I I hurt with you. I empathize with you. And I want to, within Black Men Bill, I want to work on the ways that I've internalized all of that and hurt the people who I love and that are around me. So I do care that you're a different gender, a different sexuality, or you're fluid that you uh, that you're in a different geography, that you're in Appalachia and I'm in Miami. I care about that. And I am not your enemy and you are not my enemy. And I think it's our ability to say that not I am not a class reductionist. I do believe that class and the wealthy and the one percent in this country are the reason that our that that our world is as fucked as it is and maybe maybe irreparably and i understand that their expression that the expression of class conflict within our community makes and results in different feelings and different responses to it and we just have to be able to wade in the complexity and we have to be able to communicate a real care for how people experience this world differently and always remind them that the fight for um, equal rights for gender, for sexuality, for race, for for ability, um, all of those things. The common enemy is uh, a wealth, the, I don't mean a, um, the wealthy white men who in this country who have, who have been running this country 
in, in, a, in a way that only ingratiated themselves since the beginning of it. And I, I just, I don't know a way that I get the spirit of your question and I, I really feel you a lot of times when I'm like, why are we arguing about this when Bezos just made a billy every five yeah. seconds since we started talking? Um, and I think we just have a responsibility to wade in the gray areas, to be able to hold it all, hold all the nuance, hold all the complexity. Um, and I think it is that it is that um, responsibility to care that then really gets people to understand that it's a bigger, we have a bigger enemy. We have a bigger fight and none of us are the enemy. Yeah, we're all we're all gotten fucked up in the blender of this thing that we're living in, but I'm not your enemy, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. Speaking with okay. Phil Agnew of Black Men Build, you know, we kind of have a really good idea of just how obscene wealth is. You know, we're based in the Fort Lauderdale area and you're in Miami. So we really, you know, if you want to see what obscene wealth looks like, just drive along A1A for about 40 or 50 miles, because that's how long it goes. Mm -hmm. And that's how obscene it really is. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think this is a perfect transition to what I think is a very important topic to talk about. And that, of course, is you were a senior advisor to Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. A lot mm -hmm. of things obviously transpired over the course of the past several years, including the conversation about Palestinian rights, which never, ever made it into the presidential discussion before. Um, yep. Even in 2016, it was eh, kind of they were gently going into it. But 2020, um, there's. There's a lot of things that obviously could have been done a lot better regarding the second Bernie Sanders presidential run. But I do think regarding the Israel-Palestine fight, this mm -hmm. was something that was of tantamount importance in terms of the conversation that was driven in the right direction. And Bernie allowed it to be a vessel on his campaign. Credit to him because he also evolved on the issue in many ways. Mm -hmm. What was your experience like regarding not just that particular topic, but also being in the Bernie circle and learning what you learned and what we could be doing going forward in terms of building that solidarity movement? Because Jen and I almost universally agree that the future rests with labor. It, electoral politics will have its role, but solidarity within the labor movement, in my humble opinion, is the key ingredient to us getting where we need to go and combating the oligarchic control of our country, whether it is by Bezos, whether it is by Musk, whether it is by Bill Gates, who I still think is the most dangerous oligarch of them all. Can I just uh, clarify that we're talking about labor and not unions? Like those are yes. not necessarily the same thing. Like we stand with oh, labor. No. We don't I, always I, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I didn't take it that way. Um, okay. And uh, I wouldn't. Um, and uh, I don't think I'm in any position to disagree with that take. I, I, it's hard sometimes to say what is the most important thing at any given time, place and condition. But I don't see how um, the United States, you know, we're, we're already bringing up the rear of the net of the worldwide movement, um, but but engages in this fight without a very, very, very strong labor movement. And our, our previous guest, Shahid, was talking about it, you know, and I think that's a place where we have some excitement um, where we see people. These are I mean, some of them are being supported by some of the larger unions, but only after these, frankly, grassroots baristas and packers and hopefully soon drivers yes. right, um, um, have started to unite 
Um, and, and, and then, you know, you get, you know, you get a union coming in and saying, Hey, you can, you can use our office and make some calls. Um, so I, I, I really agree that we need a strong, a, a very strong, and I think a, a labor movement, I think organizing the unemployed, the underemployed, you know, we, and that's what you're saying, you know, it's not just unions in the workplace, but it is us having the ability to frankly say, we are the people who make this country run. We've built it, we've developed it, we build the technology, we ship the products, we deliver the products. We need to have a say in what happens in our government. Frankly, we need control of what happens in our government. Um, Going back to your initial um, uh, premise around Bernie, you know, it's not just being humble, it's just a fact. I was only the, the senior advisor during the last four or five weeks of the campaign. Um, and before that, I was a surrogate. And so I had a lot more experience um, being a surrogate for the campaign than I did a, a, a real senior advisor. Once again, another fact, it's not a condemnation of them. I, I don't know that I was ever really a senior advisor to the campaign, um, meaning I was never a part of inner circle conversations or dictating what happens with the campaign or any move. Maybe if I had have been welcomed into that position earlier. Uh, maybe I would have been asked to be in those rooms and those conversations, but I wasn't. Um, and, and, and so I think that's really important for people to know. I've said it every single time um, when people ask me because it's important. And I think it's also a, an answer to your question. You know, they, the, the campaign maintained a very small circle of uh, people uh, who were around the senator, people who had been with him during the previous campaign, people who had been with him for many campaigns prior to that, people that he trusted. Um, objectively, I don't take offense to that, but I think that there are some huge drawbacks to keeping such a small circle of people who are not accepting of new ideas and radical new ways of doing things and new constituencies that other people may think are important and may think you need to talk to. And so I think that's a huge thing that hopefully a future left campaign will overcome. Uh, my time on the campaign and what I saw, Peter, um, let me tell you this. The biggest thing that I saw, and then maybe we can talk about some of the things I saw within the campaign, is the fact that they had me at barbershops. I did talks at barns, literal barns, barnstorms at barns. I did um, conversations and talks at universities, at churches, in rural America, in Latino parts of the country, in Black parts of the country, in urban centers in the, in the, in the um, country, in the West in Iowa and in the South, people love and want left politics. They are waiting, not waiting, but because of the way the, the electoral process is here, you can kind of say waiting, but they're waiting for a campaign and a candidate who can communicate with care and thoroughness what a left politic will do to put food on their table, put books in their in their, in their kids' lockers, um, put jobs in their community. Um, they they want, they love left politics. Yeah, Bernie was incredible. And I don't really have a lot bad to see. He's a, we knew what he was. He's an old guy who's not going to take new ideas really quickly. He's not going to pivot on the new identities and things super quickly. It takes a whole bunch of time. But at the end of the day, they love Nina Turner and they loved left politics, people coming together, 
beyond different people advancing this country in a radical new direction that was for the everyday person and not the rich person in your town, city, state, or country or world. That is the big thing that I, you know, it sounds cliche and maybe it is, but I was consistently blown away by the diversity of people that I engaged with who were excited about the promise of left politics being the dominant political uh, arena and discourse of ideas in this country. Yeah, and it's all presentation. It's yes. all presentation. I can go into someplace and explain the same exact policy two different ways. And you can tell when people genuinely want to build coalition and have people come together and when yes. they're trying to create barriers by the way that they phrase things. Yes. Because it is really not even a secret that the majority of people are actually on the same page with most things. Yes. Um, yes. And so the fact that we don't have those things that's a testament to a broken republic that doesn't represent when you've got the minority dictating for the majority. It's a it's a non-functioning republic. But mm -hmm. most people are in alignment, like yep. with, with most of what we call progressive policies um, are supported by most people in both parties. Yes, they absolutely also, are. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Phil. There's a deep, deep, deep and, and And we see it across the discourse. And now the right. Capitalism, you all were talking about it in the previous conversation. Uh, capitalism is crumbling like all around us. Yeah. The yeah. legitimacy, whether capitalism is or not, in some places, the legitimacy of the neoliberal plan, the capitalist plan for organizing the world is crumbling all around us. People are saying this doesn't work. And what the left has not been able to do consistently on a mass day, mass scale, and I don't think it's all their fault, but some of it is, we have to own that, is present the answer to, to, to all, the, all the shit. The right is saying, you know what? It's all fucked, so double down on it. Double down on the patriarchy. Double down on, you know, double down on, uh, you know, it's only breaking because we started driving it too fast. We need to get back to driving at about 50, 60 miles an hour like we used to do back in the great 60s. And everything will be OK. Everything will be OK. And people are like, well, all right. You know, the people are, you know, and don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people with a whole bunch of hate, a whole bunch of hate for women, a whole bunch of hate for immigrants, a whole bunch of hate for black people, a whole bunch of hate for Jews who are who are really, really revving it up. But I refuse to believe that that is actually the majority of the country. It, it, it is my belief that there are people on both sides, and I'm not talking about extremists per se, but I'm saying that the majority of the populace is undecided. Yeah. That's when what I, I really want to say. When I'm, when I'm talking to somebody you know, regarding, let's say, economics, and I do believe in the free market, but I also believe that we need a legitimate social safety net. We need what is the most successful in any of the thriving countries in the world, whether it is Japan, Germany, Scandinavia. Uh, you know, there, there is a way to do this. You have to have a combination of capitalism with socialism. If you don't have it, it can't work either way. And that is the misnomer that a lot of people, whether they're afraid of the word, I just look at it this way. I believe in a living wage because I don't want people dependent on the government to survive. Hmm. I believe in universal health care because for-profit middlemen have no reason to exist in between us and our doctors. Hmm. I believe in criminal justice reform because if you don't have it, you don't actually have freedom despite how loud people want to talk about it. Hmm. We don't actually need war 
the ones who want it want it because there is a lot of money to be made. Oh, yeah. More than anything else. And then ultimately, if you don't have a planet that's healthy, you're not going to live anyway. So you might as well get to the root of the main cause of where everyone can identify a legitimate concern regarding climate change. And that is we don't have clean drinking water. And anyone who thinks that they would sit on their hands without clean drinking water. Go into Little Havana, go into Liberty City, Mm -hmm. go into Pompano and ask them how they feel about their water. I guarantee you, you're not going to find one who thinks it's okay that there's a little tint in the water or that it tastes a little funny. That's because they're getting poisoned. No, Maybe Obama should go in there and take a sip. Maybe yeah, if yeah. Obama holds some sort of press conference in there and, and has- And everything will be there, okay. Everything will be whether better as long as Obama it's says Jackson, so. It's Jackson, Mississippi. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And yes, there are communities that are going to get hit even harder. The fact yeah. that people think it's okay to talk about fracking in this country is absolutely insane. Yep. And whatever the pathway is to a clean energy grid, I know there's a lot of people who have a very strong opinion about nuclear power. I think that word just scares the hell out of people. But what yep. I also believe is that we have to get off of coal and natural gas. It has to happen, and it has to happen sooner rather than later. And I think the way that the message is ultimately sold to the American people has to be done in a way that doesn't it's not that it's offending people. It's that people get very caught up in being too far to the left, being considered communist, being too far to the right, being considered fascist. And so having not necessarily being in the middle, because that's how people feel comfortable. They say, well, I'm a centrist because that's what makes them feel you know, good. Right. Uh, there has to be a way where we can build this solidarity movement where I think most people actually do agree with these particular issues. You want to say the top five of what I just mentioned? If that is what it is, fine. Have at it. I'm in Mm -hmm. it. And I I hope other people are in it. And Mm -hmm. that is where I think we continue to build. And the problem is, is that with the billionaire class, they have carte blanche to just buy off as many politicians as they can. But if we build a big enough movement that's in the millions, they can't stop us, no matter what they try. Yeah, they, I, you know, I agree. I, I'd love to talk to you more about your theory around capitalism and socialism working together. I think, um, yeah, I just love to talk more about it. I don't think now is the the time and the place, but I'm, I, you know, I was a business student. I think, you know, we've never experienced in the United States any semblance of a free market system at all, you know, yeah. Um, um, and uh, yeah, I, I love, I, I think at the end of the day, what we can absolutely agree on, even though that's not even the point for us to agree. But I, 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 in my experience, though limited, that short time that I had to travel around the country with this, with this, you know, social Democrat running for president is that that's what it boils down to. Most people just want to figure out how they're going to eat, how they're going to be able to, you know, make something for themselves, maybe go see a movie, go, maybe go take a good trip. You know, um, they want to be comfortable. And there's more than enough in this country, more than enough in this world for everybody to have everything that they need, plus some without destroying our planet and destroying their neighbor. Um, And uh, I think most people can get behind that. And then there are some that can't. And uh, that is, you know, uh, an incredibly frustrating thing for somebody who likes to. Yeah, I'm a kumbaya guy deep, deep down in my heart, you know, as much as I rail against the empire, you know, and I do do think some people will not have a place in this new world that we want to build and we'll figure out what to do with them. But I I don't I don't 
I don't believe that uh, most people uh, really, 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 really want to see someone else experience life the way that most of us are experiencing life. You know, just people feel like, hey, we've been taught this story. We talk, you all were talking about narrative and I don't think narrative will win it all for us, but narrative has definitely won a lot for them. You know, it's definitely won a lot for our opposition, this story that if someone else has something, that means you don't. Um, and, and so I know we've got a wrap, but I, I it's see- It's not a, a pie. It's not a pie. Yes, it's not a pie. It's not. It's an endless supply of pot cookies. That's yeah, what yeah. I like to think of it as. <laughs> and we'll just keep baking them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I really love, I really appreciate this conversation. I, I really hope that we can come back. Uh, um, the, like I said, the organization is Black Men Build. We have chapters all over the country. Our website is blackmen.build. And our goal is to bring Black men into the left to uh, bring us in greater um, community with each other and really with ourselves as well. A lot of what we do is around examining how uh, the, the- Is it dot com? Is it dot com? Nope, just blackmen.build, you know, where- oh. Wow, we're trendy. That's yeah. fancy. Yeah, we definitely yeah. We, we definitely need to meet up. Um, obviously, we're within probably forty five minutes of each other. Yep. Um, we both uh, live in the town of Plantation, uh, mm -hmm. which, from where you are, I'm guessing is probably about yeah, forty minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, we're still working. The next on what time we're doing. down in the three hundred five. Although now you now there's no three hundred five in our district anymore, so I'm kind of. No offense, but that was such a pain for me to go have to canvas from here, go down to Surfside, please. <laughs> the the traffic over, like, it was ridiculous. I'm not <laughs> sad to see that part of our district go. Yeah, Sorry. Goodbye, Aventura. Yeah, the way that the district lines have been redrawn um, in our area, if if Jen were to consider running against Wasserman Schultz again, it definitely would be significantly more advantageous in terms of the territory that would need to be covered. It would also be a hell of a lot easier to canvas and a hell of a oh. lot easier to cover the district. So yeah. I don't think that those things don't matter. It's like when when somebody like, uh, like AOC or Jamal Bowman win their districts, don't forget, they can walk the district. That mm -hmm. is a wonderful, wonderful advantage to have. It is. Whereas yeah. in some districts, you know, that's why we're huge, huge fans of Sheila Sherfulis McCormick. Try canvassing Aventura. Yeah. Well, what, what she was able to accomplish by winning a district that started down in Miramar and went all the way up to West Palm Beach is pretty amazing, all things considered. Mm -hmm. uh, gerrymandering, obviously, is a huge problem, not just here in Florida, but pretty much everywhere. And yep. so, yeah, there's definitely let, let's definitely have another conversation soon. And for sure. thank uh, you, you know, so much, Phil. Thank you for for coming on. I'm even, you know, and talking about the, the Zionism issue with me. I mean, I it's, you know, it's got to keep happening. So I'm hopefully I'm going to start like and in December we have the rabbi coming back. Correct. Yes. Peter. Yeah. The rabbi yes. is coming back. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on, Phil. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank and I will, yeah, yep. Thank you both. And looking forward to seeing you all in person. Bye, Phil. Absolutely. Okay. Bye -bye. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. Yeah, he's awesome. He is. And uh, he's one of those people where I feel like, you know, any friend of Nina's. Uh, Nina, well, yeah. Nina gives her full endorsement of Phil Agnew. Of so. course. Of course. Yeah. So that's why, yeah. And well, he's cool anyway. And I remember he was one of the first people we met with. He's the type of person that if he 
you know, depending on what happens you down the road. You didn't go meet him in person. We did. No, not I that did. I, I feel like we did, went to I Miami. I feel like I met him in person at some point in Miami that. at a, at a place like, or maybe it was on a zoom call. It might've been a zoom call. So before we go, obviously we know there's a lot of stories happening right now, but of course the big one is, uh, you know, what happened in Colorado, uh, last night. Um, obviously you know that area pretty well. He went to school very close to Colorado Springs. Uh, well um, I was in Boulder and I am familiar with Colorado and, um, yeah, but this could have happened anywhere. It doesn't like, really matter where it. it. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't really like matter that's where the it thing. happened. Yeah. that it did. And yeah. the the inter what what is so interlocking about this story is the fact that you know Libs of TikTok, who is this Orthodox Jewish lady, and again this whole thing comes full circle about um, you know where does anti-Semitism stem from and what exacerbates it in certain ways. Uh, this particular lady. Uh, has made it her mission to basically highlight everything that is, uh, you know, anti-trans that people disagree with. One thing that is of great controversy is whether or not kids should be taken to drag shows. Okay, so let's just say for the sake of argument that taking kids to drag shows is a bad idea. Okay, for the most part, I would agree with that. Is taking a, a, a shotgun into a drag show and starting blasting people away, the answer to solving the problem? If you think the answer is yes, then you've got the problem. That's the bottom line. And that's how people like this get driven to this point. There's always these outliers of people that are going to go very far. But here's the here's the rub, Jen, and this is what isn't going to get talked about, of course, is that this guy was already on the grid. This guy that did this has already was already what is it with all of these guys always being on the FBI radar for doing something extremely incendiary knowing that they're very likely going to do something absolutely insane and then of course they do this I mean to me this is always it's a combination of a lot of ignorance propaganda and political theater and then that's combined with um, very hateful rhetoric. And the hateful rhetoric does matter. Um, it's gotten so much more brazen. I, I do think that, you know, does it make people do things? No, I don't think it makes people do things, but it somewhat normalizes um, hate. And so I'm sort of just, you know, it's not, yeah, it's not good. And I, I stopped talking, you know, we talked about this earlier. I don't really like to talk about the shootings anymore. I feel like I crossed over for me. It was Sandy. This Hook. is a, this is a different type of shooting though. This is a different type of shooting. Let's, we, we got to call this, we got to call a spade a spade here. This was a, sh- this was a shooting directed at a very specific circumstance. Well, how is this different than like the Pulse nightclub shooting? I, I agree that I mean you're you're talking about which group of people is being gunned down. Um th- you know, it does matter. I personally think that the same people that are constantly saying things about parents' choice, parental choice, parental choice, but somehow that only works for some things. Parents apparently don't have the right to say what their kids do and do not go see. Um, first of all, not all drag shows are the same. They're just sure. not. There's something called nuance. There's something called context. And I actually do believe in parents' choice and think that parents should be entitled to determine what's best for their children. And for the most part, 
that works. Yes, there's going to be outliers. There's going to be people that do things that most of us might find inappropriate. And when that happens, there might have to be accountability for those different infractions when that does happen. But that's not how we should be creating policy based on the outliers. That's just not how this works. But um, I don't necessarily have just a blanket problem with kids seeing drag. Um, some drag is no different than theater. Why is Hairspray watching a, a musical of John Travolta dressed in drag? Or when the, when I saw it, it was divine. No, original. I think a better example is the birdcage. Okay, the that's fine too. That's my point. Yeah. And, and a club that existed like that, I wouldn't necessarily have a problem taking a kid to if it was appropriate hours. I generally don't think that kids go to nightclubs and bars in general. I think that in general, those are adult activities. But does that mean that all drag shows, should we should ban children from saying, no, unless it's porn. And we have rules for that. Like, I just, I don't understand why people want to create more and more rules. The goal is more and more freedom and more and more justice, not more and more rules. Well, that's just I think my on take. one hand, on one hand, they want to protect kids. I have no doubt that there is- From uh, what? From debauchery. From what? From debauchery. Okay. Well, you know what kids need? They need protection from being houseless. They need protection from not having health care. They need protection from being in debt for eternity, for wanting dare to get an education. That's what they need protection from. They don't need protection from drag shows. They I, just don't. I agree <laughs> that on the, on the, and, and listen, there are people, there are conservatives in our chat who think that the drag show is an issue, but in the grand scheme of things, it isn't in the, it's probably not even the top 50, top 100. There are so many pressing issues that we deal with on a daily basis that people are not looking at. And they're using this particular issue, which really has no standing whatsoever in terms of how this affects our daily lives. And again, it's not to say that parents shouldn't be able to make their own choices for their children. If ones feel that there is an issue with kids seeing drag shows, I understand that and I don't disagree. But at the same time, you cannot tell me whether it's uh, Metaopoly, Potato Junkie, any of our conservative friends who are here, that you can justify going into a drag show, even if you disagree with it, and start killing people. Like this is no, I don't care. Look, Jason, I'm not saying they're for children. I'm just saying I don't support the idea of making rules, telling other people what they can and cannot do. First of all, places that sell alcohol have ages on them anyway. So I don't understand why we're even having this discussion. Um, and and no, I don't think of drag shows as a general like type of pride event. Nevin Kusak, necessarily family friendly. Nevin Kusak's statement is exactly correct. That's the that's the answer. That is the answer. You want to talk about, you know, what is actually exactly. Well, that's that's the point. But here's the thing. The problem in this country, any of it, anything that you see as a problem is not caused by the trans community. I assure yeah. you the Definitely. least the the most marginalized, vulnerable people are never going to be the cause of your woes. That's not how this works. And don't so, forget I, that the people, and generally speaking, and I ain't naming any names, but do not forget that generally speaking, those particular people that are within that community that get a loud microphone and complain to the high heavens about the things that matter to them within the LGBTQ community, very often those people are no different than any other grifter in politics. 
They are not out there complaining about a living wage. They're not out there complaining about universal health care. They're not out there complaining about the environment. They're complaining about a niche issue that has no impact on capitalism run amok in any way whatsoever. And that's what people get so upset about. And rightfully so. But it's it's a hypocrisy across all political spectrums. It's not just one. This just happens to be one that really makes people very uncomfortable. I'm telling you, it's it's this like the fascination that people have about genitalia is just bizarre to me. It's like, why, why not be fascinated with like livers or kidneys or spleens? Like what, why are you so fascinated with people's genitalia? And why, why are people so concerned with this? No, I don't think children should be in inappropriate sexual innuendo type places. I don't think that. I don't think they should be at nightclubs or bars. I don't think that children should be handed drugs illegally. And, I'm you're, not- bringing up, and you're bringing up the point, which is basically in agreement with what the conservatives are saying, but then you, but then they want to take it essentially to the next level, which is, do you think you have a right to control how parents raise their kids? That's really the question. Well, they do sometimes. Like, for example, they want to they want to do things like banning books and saying that's because we support a parent's right to choose how to educate their children. But yet they feel the need to get between that parent, their child and the pediatrician or the doctor regarding whether or not a child should be entitled to take hormone blockers. Um, So it's like either you support a parent's choice or you don't. And and to me, I do. I think that I'm a very live and let live person. And anybody who thinks that people are making those decisions very willy nilly are ludicrous. That's not happening. So it's just, I I find the whole thing very frustrating. You guys are making something out of nothing. Is there some sort of like rash of people that are like sneaking kids in the drag shows? And and like, is there something that I don't know about? Like, is this a real problem? Like, I don't understand why this is an issue for people. Is this happening? Are there field trips to drag shows? Is, well, is the county school board like I don't understand what are people up, about? And 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 again, this brings up what I think is one of the key points of this. Um, and we did a video clip on this recently. Um, I'm not even sure if it's dropped yet, or maybe it's dropping. I think it's dropping tomorrow. Is about Matt Walsh. You know, Matt Walsh went around making a documentary film called "What Is a Woman," and this obviously is a direct shot at the trans community. And he was on Joe Rogan recently and was asked specifically how many kids, how many, you know, individuals under the age of 18 are taking puberty blockers. And his answer was millions. 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 They're signing up. Doctors are prescribing them left and right. And in reality, it's about five to 6,000 in the whole country. <laughs> Out of 330 <laughs> million people. Right. That's, that's, that's and so let's all people. get fixated on that. It's a crisis. Yeah. And that, and bungled and botched. Yep. 5,000. That's it. And again, you want to die on that hill and say that kids shouldn't take puberty blockers? Sorry. It's just, there's. But again, like I grew up with kids and again, very Jewish neighborhood where kids were having plastic surgery before they were 18. And there were a lot of parents that were like appalled that you would allow your kid to have cosmetic surgery before. I I know. I mean, come on, Jen, you know, I don't want to be stereotypical in any way, but fine. I'm just going to say it anyway. Um, When you grow up in that type of a upper middle class Jewish enclave, how many girls were getting nose jobs when they were like, I don't know, 14 years old? By the way, I I find that very sexist because I actually know more guys that have had their noses done than really. 
Oh yes. And if you're ever interested, anybody, if you, I could, and I wouldn't do it publicly, but but next time you're over, I'll pull down my yearbook and I could go page by page. It's really quite astounding. But anyway, oh, a lot of guys in my high school had nose jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. The fact that you assumed it was girls. Yeah, there were definitely girls too. Oh, I it's definitely is. I, yeah, no, listen, I stand corrected. I definitely thought it would definitely be more girls, but you know what? It's, mm. it's pretty equal. I got to tell you. And really what it comes well, down you know to, to women's, is people that well, can afford it. That's well, true. But also to girls' credit, they're willing to admit that they have a nose job. The truth of the matter is, it. I guess from your perspective, it turns out a lot of these guys get the nose jobs and they don't tell anybody because they're either they're embarrassed to oh. talk about it or they just don't have they're not willing to be honest with themselves. So it is. Okay. Potato, you actually do not understand because puberty blockers, the minute you stop taking them, you go back to where you were, whereas a nose job is a permanent thing that you do to yourself. So one is a treatment and one is a permanent alteration. And yeah, I do think that these are things that need to be discussed between parents and doctors and professionals. And they all, the one thing that all of these things have in common is they're none of my business. That's what they have in common. They're all things that are in the purview of none of my business. So yeah, anyway, anything to me that is a healthcare thing is none of your business. (laughs) And ultimately- You've got a lot of kids that have a lot of issues. It's not easy growing up these days. And you add the social media element into the equation. It can confuse people. And I understand where Potato and maybe even Metaopoly is coming on that regard. You know, if you think that that, uh, Potato, you do not know what you're talking about regarding puberty blockers. I would highly recommend you stop talking about that because you're yeah, absolutely- Yeah, you really don't understand. And or you I don't know where you're getting your talking now, points. Now, you know you, what, let's plan a good trans panel. We should because sure. we actually know some extremely qualified people to talk on this. And I would actually even be happy to find a medical professional that- I'm even ha- Listen, I'm even, fine bringing, I'm even fine bringing on somebody who, you know, maybe if you're, you know, you want to recommend somebody who is anti-puberty blocker to come on the- no, it, it can't. No, it has to be based on science and facts. I'm not going to have okay. somebody come on with just some sort of like dogma uh, uh, and 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 no. If you have contrary facts to so contrary information, I will bring on experts that have facts and science, and we can discuss that. But no, I'm not going to have somebody come on here and just be against something because they're against it. You can have those opinions, but that's not facts. So, um, yeah. Real biologist and trans theorist. Yeah, see, I don't know where that that comes from, but I will definitely have, we will have a good trans panel because I do, and we could talk, we could have a panel about trans sports. We can have a panel about trans kids. It's not a, it's not a hill to die on because at the end of the day, we have got so many other problems. You know what would be great? And I would say this to anybody who are fans of Libs of TikTok, and I'm not dis- disputing whether or not you think her content is uh, honest or is being shown in a dishonest fashion regarding how it's being framed and the people that she's exposing, if you will. Why don't we have a viral sensation exposing the absolute criminal behavior of our for-profit healthcare system? Where is the viral TikTokers and Instagram accounts showing us the hospital bills 
that people get saddled with because they don't want to die. Okay, people in the chat, I'm not saying I don't have people on that I don't agree with. I'm just saying you have to have actual facts to support a position. You can't just claim you're against something. You can claim that, but that's not worthy of discussing. Discussions are only worthwhile if you have information that's new or fresh or interesting, or if your opinion is based on substance, reason, facts, and the like. Matt Walsh is considered one of the foremost people within that movement in terms of his credentials and what he's fighting and for. He, and he, and he had no lied so badly on yeah. Joe Rogan that his assistant, Jamie, just had to call him out. He didn't have it. He felt like, all right, this is absolutely insane. Like if you're a little bit off, maybe even a few hundred thousand off, okay, fine. You said in the millions, this is 5,000 people. You are propagandizing people into thinking that there's a real crisis here when in reality there is anything close to it. It's probably very similar to what it's always been, only now it's a lot more exposed. So with that said. Oh, um, Paul, from I know. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. I hear you. I've, I, I, they just all came out of nowhere all of a sudden. They're just, we're surrounded. And red, and, and red eyes Solaris is absolutely correct. It's always easier to bully the marginalized groups, but reality is our system is completely failing. And when you're failing, what do you often do? You find a scapegoat. It's totally the Mexicans. The Mexicans are terrible people. They're taking your jobs. They're take- I mean, it's like, it's like that. Like, that's what it is. And so we have to recognize, and I'm willing to bet that most of the people in our chat across the entire political spectrum probably would agree on most issues regarding labor. They may not like unions. They may not like union bosses. I don't particularly. I don't like them either. But I like workers. I like people who do an honest job. I want people to have a trade. I want people to be able to go to a trade school, tuition free to learn a skill. Oh, come on. You know, I desire to be surrounded by unhealthy and uneducated people. Why would I want to give people health care and an education? I so prefer to be surrounded by the ignorant and unhealthy. Well, for those of you who are here and happen to like our show, and you know, the thing is, when we say we're small but mighty, the one thing we can give credit to for the people who are here, they typically are here for most of the show, which is great. They don't just hop on for five minutes and jet. So I guess we must be doing something decent. So with that said, please go to patreon.com forward slash generational change if you are so inclined to support our Small But Mighty channel. We are about to cross 8,000 subscribers. Make sure you get this out there to as many people as you can. Remember, like, subscribe, and share if you can, which would be really awesome. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a supporter of our great show. But if you are feeling a little bit more generous and you want to be a $10 a month Patreon, you can get two things, the Lulu sticker and our Mansion Parliamentarian bumper sticker, which will allow you to show everybody who is really in charge of this country and is very likely to be president in 24, if it's not Trump or DeSantis, of course. Well, I mean, this is just, I figure if these are the people strong enough that create a situation where our president can't get anything done because of these people, then they should just be in charge. That's what I think. Here comes the sun. Is the beautiful tri-blend soft I as I think you don't need to do that. Guys, $25 gets you the jersey. That's you don't what have to you sell want. it. It's really yeah. awesome. And that's if you're $25. But of course, if you are really, really generous and you believe in small business and you happen to be a small business owner, we would love to have you as our small business patron, Patreon for, for just $50 a month. Apex Insurance Agency is our current one, but very awesome, small business sponsor, home auto and life insurance. 
considering that it is officially Health Insurance Month, although it should just be health care, but I digress. You should definitely give Apex Insurance Agency Small Business in Delray Beach, Florida a call to see what rates they're offering since this is open enrollment month. You might be surprised. You might find exactly what you're looking for. And so I haven't figured out, Jen, um, I don't want to do a show Wednesday night. I don't think that's a good idea. The question is, do we maybe want to do something Wednesday afternoon? Maybe something like that? Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm hosting Thanksgiving on Thursday. I'll be cooking. So no, I'm not doing a show on Wednesday. After All right. So then I guess the question is, do we do anything tomorrow? And if not tomorrow, then I guess we're, you know, we're, t- we're taking a little mini vacay. We'll have, we'll have the Thanksgiving vacation. We'll be back uh, very strong. Uh, I tell you guys, things are going to, things are looking up quite a bit. We're, we're very excited. Uh, remember, mark your calendars Friday, December 23rd. Our Festivus for the rest of us. It's a Festivus. So it's becoming a tradition now. We're going to have some really awesome guests. We've already got a handful of them confirmed and hopefully several more. We're going to have a handful of those panels. We are going to have quite the airing of grievances this year. Oh, yes. Well, well, we're going to, and I think we'll be more organized. I think like- what we should yes. do is have diff- like each panel. So the first panel will be the airing of the grievances. The second panel could be feats of strength. Like, I think we should maybe do it like that. And, you know, but we're starting to put it together, guys. So it will be our second annual Festivus for the rest of us. Um, December is going to have a lot of guests across the political spectrum. We will have our good friend, Mike Figueredo of the Humanist Report. Uh, the Humanist Report. He will be coming on. Mike Fettuccini. Mike Fettuccini. <laughs> Coming on. Uh, we will also have our friend Sean Fitzgerald, uh, the actual justice warrior. See, you guys be- don't think I talk to people that we don't agree with? We're having on the actual justice warrior. And he and will be on, on and he will be on on next Monday on the 28th. Excellent. He will be our main guest. But you know who else is coming on that day? We are going to have Michelle Grimm, who is the state house representative in Ohio who canceled hundreds of millions of dollars in medical debt. That's right. It can be done. And it was done by a state house representative. Go figure, right? That's awesome. Oh, come on, man. You can't do that without my authority. Will there be cookies? If I could do that, I would have cookies. I mean, we'll have cookies, but you guys will have to get cookies. But there will be there will be a Festivus poll, and we do have festive. We will be in Festivus clothing. We will be festivously attired. We have our. We have gear. Festivus holiday gear. We do. It's a Festivus. <gasps> so but yeah, it'll so- be a good show. It'll be a good show. We'll have a bunch of cool content creators. We'll you know. We'll air our grievances. Yes. We obviously appreciate you guys coming on. Obviously, hats off to Phil Agnew. Fantastic conversation. Obviously, the same to Shahid Buttar. You know, we're we're doing what we can. We're kicking butt and taking names. And we really appreciate you guys coming on this evening. We hope you all have a very happy Thanksgiving. Uh, Hopefully, you all have the opportunity to spend it with friends and family. Um, It is our... It is our biggest holiday of the year. Uh, I know. And we didn't even really talk about that. And since we're not going to have a show, like, I think it's important to talk about that, you know? No, and I think we can recap that on Monday, which I think is fine. Um, Obviously, it's a holiday that, you know, has its fair share of controversy without question. But the one thing that's great about Thanksgiving is that for the overwhelming majority of people, it's a holiday that is celebrated in the best possible way. 
It's the most coming together of all holidays we have in this nation. It is our oldest holiday. It's also a holiday that you must remember how we've mistreated Native Americans in this country. And masking that, I don't think it's the same. I think most people are much more aware today of what the origins of Thanksgiving are all about. I and don't know. No, it's still pretty like whitewashed and 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 pared down, but like for me, and I've said it before, like I don't have any attachment to it as a holiday, right? Like I don't, I don't have any sort of like false sense or illusion about what it is about. It's just for me now, I just like cooking that food and I like getting together and having dinner with my family. Like that's all yes. it is. It's not but for me, it's not, any, it's not anything other than that. Absolutely. But you know what? If we're being completely honest, Thanksgiving, that is what it is. It's not a religious holiday. It's not a holiday where the the what the reason it's celebrated is to bring as many people together and give thanks as you possibly can. And that doesn't unfortunately happen much in our society. It happens to be one of the few times of the year where people are looking out for each other. Well, it's true, which is why like people when, you know, this is the time of year when the food kitchens and the food distributions don't need volunteers. People sign up with their groups like years in advance to do Thanksgiving. It's actually the other times when Correct. we need people to help. This is actually like with, yeah. like with mobile school pantry. This oh my gosh, she probably has so many volunteers. Doesn't, doesn't need our help, especially this week. This is basically, yeah. I know- Because I knew I didn't hear from her and I didn't hear from you about it. I'm a, She's got no. so many people. Yeah, no, she's doing really well. Um, Good. And and red and red eye Solaris is absolutely correct. It's important on that day to try and give mutual aid to indigenous groups. Absolutely, indigenous. indigenous. Groups. I said I did it. I, I corrected myself. Thank you very much. Um, um, but you're right. I think and it's I important to do that. I think yeah. it's always important to do that. Um, but this yeah, has and, been and except for in Florida, we're not taking up a collection for the Seminoles here. No, we don't need to do that. But um, nah. remember that there's our, there are, if we're being completely honest, guys, there's tens of millions of people in this country that are suffering every day. They oh, don't yeah. have enough to eat. They don't have a roof over their head. That's anything to write home about. The food insecurity in Broward alone is out of control. Massive. Out of control. I, I don't see, people don't really understand how huge it is. How many hundreds of thousands of people in Broward are like so food insecure. And with all, and with all due respect, without naming any names, but celebrating getting, you know, a mini park is nothing compared to what a federally elected representative could do to deal with the malnourishment crisis that exists in Broward County. That's that so is bad. the job. That is the job of the congresswoman. And as we all know, who our congresswoman is, is a complete failure at her job. So just remember that on Thanksgiving. If Jen were the congresswoman, from this particular area, Thanksgiving would look a hell of a lot different and for the better. Because for people that are suffering, we would do everything in our capacity to make sure that that was not the case, even if it's only temporary. But we would certainly do that. And I think we could definitely help set uh, much in the way of the precedent. Oh, come on. Uh, She's going to be out there doing her food distribution photo op. I'm sure. Yeah, she'll hold the annual Thanksgiving, whatever it is. Yeah, of course. Well, again, that's the whole thing about optics. 
The yeah. one thing and never. I actually don't do anything on Thanksgiving. I actually usually host Thanksgiving. So I, sure. that's like the time when I'm not volunteering is, and I also know that's when they have the most help. Speaking of the food bank and Nevin Gusek bringing that up again, hats off to Nevin. We will be going on his show very soon. Um, despite the direction that my musical hero has gone over the years, one thing that Mr. Uh, Springsteen has always done a great job of, his number one charity in New Jersey has always been the New Jersey Food Bank. And he has been exceptionally generous. Uh, I believe tens of millions of dollars of his money has gone to this organization over the years. And that's something that you could definitely uh, take solace in. It's not everybody does. A lot of times it's done for token purposes, but- It's a tax write-off. Yeah, for many it is. Well, but hey, you know what? The United Corporations of America- I'm not against people getting a tax write-off. Have at it. You know, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with people getting a tax write-off. Like, you know, that's cool. Well- I don't begrudge that. To these. Sadly, we can't offer that because we're a 501c4. Um, and because we're a 501c4, you want me to put the, do, where is that? Where is the, hold on. Do you have a cash app banner somewhere? Uh, you're supposed to put it up. Dollar sign, gen change. Yeah, but you don't have one. We don't just have no. one. You make me have to, like, this is, you know. All right, guys. So if you are interested and you want to support our little venture. And don't let it just be Carla Harrington and Double K. Some of you other guys get in there. Double K is absolutely amazing, has been extremely generous for us today. Always. Uh, so you know. Yeah. It is obviously very appreciated. Any amount that you want to contribute means a lot. Uh and so, yeah, we are not a tax write-off because we are politically, we make political contributions. So we can't be a 501c3. For everyone in the chat, Jason Rodriguez, Potato, Paul, obviously, uh, Double K, Carla Harrington, Mario. I all wish you guys, guys, we should all just get along. We do get along. And, no, and you know do, what? But there's some, there's, there's bickering going on in the chat. There is today. bickering. And you know what? Between Paul and, and uh, Metaopoly in particular, just call the truce. You can argue, but at the end of the day, yes. And Mario, we did do our Seinfeld opening. Peter did it, though. Mm -hmm. We didn't do it as we usually do, but we did do it. I saw that you had said that when you came on. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So I'm not going to see you then. When are you coming home? Friday night. So mm -hmm. I will see you soon. Happy Wait, Thanksgiving. maybe I might be able to help you. Well, I'm trying to think because Reese is leaving Friday. Oh, you're not picking me up. No chance. Oh, you no. get in way too late, right? Not the time I'm getting in. What time are you getting in? About one o'clock. Oh my God. Why, why do you do that? Uh, just because it was, well, I wanted to, obviously I'm trying to manage the budget and the flight was available uh, late. So basically spending, you know, like I really have a whole day on Friday instead of having to leave early. Uh, but yeah, the best time to fly is yeah, early. So you could do all your Black Friday shopping? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. But the best time to fly is early in the morning or late at night. That's when the flights are usually the, the, the quietest and the most comfortable. Where's Reese? Little Reese Munchkin is upstairs sleeping, but we were... We were cuddling earlier. She's such a oh good Oh my lady. God. Yeah. Oh my Dogs God. make life better. For those of you who don't know, 
You just, you just don't know. Yeah. For those of you who do, you know. So with that said, we appreciate you all. A happy Thanksgiving one and oh, all. Oh, Jason, don't worry about me and my, and my cannabis usage. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Well, anyway, thanks guys. Uh, planes, tra- planes, trains, and automobiles bungled and botched. Agreed. That is the best Thanksgiving movie. If you guys haven't seen it, highly, highly recommend it. Del Definitely. Griffith is the man. Del Griffith. Del Griffith. <laughs> They're drunk. They don't know where we're going. How did oh, they know? He's drunk. Going? How the hell would he know where we're going? Where we're yeah, going. Know? You're going the wrong way. You're going to kill somebody. <laughs> all right, guys. Be well, and we'll see you Monday. Bye, all. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.